Take your copy of God's Word. Join us in the book of Ephesians tonight, and we're going to be in the third chapter. Uh, For the last couple of weeks, we've moved through the first two chapters, and today we're going to look at Ephesians chapter number three. And uh, um, June the 30th, June the 30th of this past year, last year, 2019, it's hard to believe how quickly as it goes by. I shared some of these passages of Scripture with you on Sunday morning uh, as we had our groundbreaking service here at church for our new Family Life Center. And uh, tonight, we're going to go back and look at some of this. Uh, We focus primarily on the last few verses for our groundbreaking service, but I want to try to kind of do an overview of the majority, if not all, of the chapter tonight uh, as we uh, move through this third chapter Uh, I went back through some of my files and looked at the message that I had preached in June for groundbreaking. I had entitled that A Prayer for Highland Park because I had based that on the Apostle Paul's prayer as he is preparing to leave the church at Ephesus, a place that he had invested his life, a place that he had grown to know and love. He ministered among the saints there, and then it was time for him to move in his ministry. And the Scripture records in the book of Acts chapter 20, in fact, in fact, the founding of the church of Ephesus is found in Acts chapter 18, 19, and 20. And you can read all about the church uh, that this letter, Ephesians, was written to. You can read about it in Acts 18, 19, and 20. So when you go back and look at those verses, Paul just kind of kneels down on the seashore before he boards a ship. And he puts his arms around the neck of some of his closest friends in the church. And the Bible says he prays for them. He prays that as their pastor, that they would experience the breadth and the depth and the height of the love of God. And that they would always keep their eyes focused on the Lord Jesus. So the prayer that Paul prayed then is what we always want to be faithful to do. And to realize here at Highland Park is to keep God first in everything that we do. But nonetheless, we left off last Sunday morning, or excuse me, last Sunday night. And if you go back and look in chapter 2 and verse number 10, the Apostle Paul calls us his workmanship. comes from a Greek word where we get our word poem, meaning God has designed us, He has made us, He has worked in our lives, and our lives are like a story. Our lives are like a poem. In fact, the psalmist said, we live our lives as a tale that is told, a story that is written, a biography of our lives, that as we live, a chapter at a time, a page at a time, a word at a time, will go into the epitaph of our life story uh, the, the, because we are God's poem, we are His workmanship that He created us to bring glory to Him. And then in, all the way down in verse number um, 12, he contrasts what an individual is like without God versus what an individual is like with God. And in verse number 12 of that second chapter, he described those without the Lord as without Christ, aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenant of promise, having no hope without God in the world. And then, if you go down to verse number 9, look at the contrast. Now, therefore, you are no more strangers and foreigners. But now, he says, you are fellow citizens with the saints and the household of God. What made the difference? It is a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Jesus moves us from being aliens with God to being fellow citizens, heirs of Christ, uh, heirs of God, joint heirs with Jesus Christ. When I um, wrote my doctoral thesis, I wrote it on the atonement, and there are a number of different elements to the atonement. One of those has to do with the concept of reconciliation. 
And when we talk about reconciliation and how God moves us from being aliens, from strangers, uh, to the commonwealth having no hope, and he moves us to being fellow citizens, saints, in the household of God, we call that reconciliation, meaning that the gap was bridged and we've been reconciled back to God. But when we talk about reconciliation, we always remember God is not reconciled to us. We are reconciled to God. When our relationship with us and the Lord were broken, it wasn't because God moved. It wasn't because God changed. It wasn't because God did anything wrong. It's because we were sinners. The wages, the Bible said, of sin is death. And when we sin, we are separated from God. So God never moves. And in order to be reconciled, we are brought back to God, not God brought back to us. That is a, that is a theological uh, truism that when we are reconciled, we are reconciled to God. And it is not that God has to move back to where we are. We always move back to Him. And the difference is we move from being strangers and aliens with no hope to being fellow citizens and saints in the household of God. That brings us to the third chapter. And you will notice as the Apostle Paul talks about at the close of chapter 2, he says that we are, a, are built together. <coughs> Pardon me. He says a habitation of God through the Spirit. You will find that word together mentioned a number of times. I pointed out some of these to you, but let me just show them to you again. I, I pointed them out over the course of the last couple of studies. Go back to chapter 1 and look in verse number 10. Chapter 1 and verse number 10. He says that in the dispensation of the fullness of time, he might gather together in one all things in Christ which are in heaven and on earth even in him. If you go to chapter 2 and verse number 5, even when we were dead in sins, has he quickened us together with Christ. By grace are you saved. Verse 6, he says, and he has raised us up together. And then all the way down to the end of the chapter, verse 22, we are builded together. In other words, the apostle is saying that this Christianity that we enjoy, having been reconciled to God, that we are made alive together, we are brought together as part of the household of God, and he said what God is doing is he is building his kingdom. You're a brick and I'm a brick and and you add to the structure of that building and I add to the structure of that building and God has taken us all together and he is building this household of faith with a saint here and a saint there and a saint there and he's made us alive together, he's quickened us together, he's made us sit together and now he says that we are built together, a habitation of God through the Spirit. So, as we move to chapter 3, Paul starts this way, for this cause... I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles, if you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which is given me to youward, how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery as I wrote afore in a few words. Remember the mystery we touched on this a few weeks ago? What was that mystery that Paul was talking about? The mystery is... How the Gentiles would be brought into the family of God. Remember, we've studied this in the book of Acts, that Paul was the missionary to the Gentile-speaking people, the Gentile world. 
And Paul would be the one that would go to those Gentile areas around the Mediterranean Sea carrying this gospel of the Lord Jesus. So none of the Old Testament saints saw that the Gentiles would be part of the family of God. And to them, it was a mystery. In fact, I had an opportunity to stop by just for a, about 10 minutes this morning uh, at, uh, in the Sunday school class that meets down in our fellowship hall, Bob Josie's Sunday school class. Uh, I just happened to stop by. I was on my way to the youth building and thought I would stop in and say hello, but they had already kind of gotten started, so I just kind of walked in and sat down very quietly. And, um, and Bob was teaching from the book of Peter, and one of the passages that they were talking about this morning is how the angels desire to look into these things. So we would say from that, for even the angels in heaven, it was a mystery that God, who would so love the world, would send his son to die on the cross to bring you and I into his family, who were not part of his family by birth. We were not part of the covenant promises of Israel. We were not Jews, uh, descendants from Abraham. But yet, even as we were Gentiles, the mystery would be that God would so love everybody that he said that in the family of God, because of the death of Christ, there is no longer a separation between Jew or Gentile. But now, we are Christian. In fact, in fact, when you get to heaven, there will not be Jew nor Gentile. When you get to heaven, there will not be Baptist, and there will not be Methodist, and there will not be Pentecostal and Presbyterian. There will be one people group, and that is Christian. Amen? Only group that'll be there because Christian is followers of the way, those who've asked Christ to be the Lord of their life. That's the only people, the only people who will be in heaven. It makes no difference what denomination. So, uh, as long as we know Christ as our Savior. So, that's the mystery, how the Gentiles would be welcomed into the family of God. Whereby, verse 4, when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages, Old Testament times, was not made known to the sons of men, as it is now revealed <clears throat> unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Here it is now, verse 6, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ by the gospel. Remember in the book of Acts, we've looked at how the Jews felt as though, since they were descendants of Abraham, that they just have an automatic free pass to come to heaven. They had, and the book of Romans speaks to this, they had the advantages of the Ten Commandments, the advantages of the law, they had the advantages of the temple priesthood, they had the advantages of, of um, the biolo biological genealogy all the way back to Abraham who was the first Hebrew, and they would say, because of all of that, then we're just, we're just guaranteed a right to go on into heaven. But that was not the case, because no one would go to heaven <clears throat> without Christ. All the Old Testament saints, they were saved or they were kept looking forward to Messiah's arrival. They looked forward to that and demonstrated their belief by offering sacrifices. You and I today, we're saved by looking back at the cross, right? We're, looking, we're saved by looking back at what took place 2,000 years ago on the cross of Calvary when Jesus died and this mystery began to dawn on the Jewish people. This mystery began to come into reality 
that the Gentiles who had been excluded are now welcomed into the family of God. Because just like the Jew, their sins can be forgiven. Their sins can be washed away. They can be made a brand new family, part of the family of God, part of the household of God, according to uh, verse 19 of chapter number 2. So, the emphasis is, this mystery makes us all one. One in the bonds of love, one in the body of Christ. Let me show you uh, the emphasis on one. Go back to chapter 2, look in verse number 15. Chapter 2, verse 15. Having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of two, look at this, one new man. No longer Jew-Gentile. No longer a separation, no longer a division, but one. You see the unity? He says it again in verse 16. <clears throat> that he might reconcile both to God in one body by the cross. Again, he mentions one. Go down to verse number 18. <clears throat> For through him we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. He, he follows this same unity theme. Go to chapter 4. And look in verse 4. There is one body, one spirit, even as you are called, and one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. So no longer, no longer are we divided by today, race. No longer are we divided by culture, or should we be? But if we're Christians, we're one in the bond of love. I've had the privilege of, of um, going to other countries on mission trips from time to time. And you know, when you're in places where you can't speak the language, there are times that you meet people that you know that they're Christians and you can't understand a word that they say. But it's just this, this understanding that goes deeper than human language. And you just know and they know. Uh, in fact, the Bible says we know we've passed from death into life because we love the brethren. And there's this immediate love for individuals, uh, even though you might have a frustration with the language barrier. You just know that they're a believer and that they're worshiping the same exact God that, that you and I are worshiping. When I shared some of this with you on our groundbreaking service, I quoted from a man by the name of Dr. Ken Hemphill. He talks about five vital relationships within the church. And how these are all to promote unity in the church. And this is what he writes. Of these five vital relationships in the church, the first is the pastor to God. Not that the pastor's role or the pastor's relationship to God is any more important than anybody else's. It's not. But God has called the pastor to be the spiritual leader in the church. And, and I can't do that unless I have a growing relationship with the Lord. So he says the first relationship is the pastor to God. And then the second one is the pastor to the people. Excuse me. The pastor to God, and then secondly is the people to God. Your relationship to God is vitally important. Your relationship to God, nothing else can substitute for that. I can be your pastor, and I love you, and I hope you know that, but I can never be God in your life. God can always be there when I can't. God will never let you down, and I may not intentionally let you down, but uh, unknowingly or because I'm imperfect, I don't care what Tina said this morning at 8.30 service. I am imperfect. Uh, but because of all of that, uh, your relationship to God is so vital. There's no substitute for that. So the five are the pastor's relationship to God and the people to God 
And then the pastor to the people, how I, how I relate to you. And then the people to the pastor and how you relate to me. And, you know, I don't, I don't know about you, but, but, but I just love, I love what I do. I love being a pastor, and I love serving God, and I love God's people. And it's good to see people love us back. And Tina and I have been great beneficiaries of good people uh, in the course of our 30 years in ministry. People that have showered us with love, that have been dear friends to us, and continue to stay good friends with us. And if God ever leaves me from here, uh, I still may not be your pastor officially, but I'll always be your friend. Amen? Always be your friend. So the pastor to God, the people to God, the pastor to the people, the people to the pastor, and then the final one is the people to each other and how we relate to each other, how we love one another and pray for one another and support each other and encourage one another and how we're there for each other. That's that spirit of oneness or unity. Remember the theme, sitting together, raised together, quickened together, made alive together, that we are one body, one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. We're all joined together to build up this household of faith that we call the kingdom of God or the body of Christ, the church. So he says, Verse number six, the mystery revealed that the Gentiles would be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel, <clears throat> whereof I was made a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given unto me by the effectual working of his power. And then this is my, I say it all the time, my favorite verse, but this is my life's verse. I have it on, my, uh, on, I have it on a, uh, a plaque on my desk. Usually when I write a letter and sign my name, I use this scripture reference, and I've counted it for my life's verse for, I guess, perhaps all of my ministerial career. It's Ephesians 3.8. Unto me, who am less than the least of all saints, is this grace given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. That was Paul's verse. The least of the saints is what he saw himself. But God gave him grace that he would take this gospel from the Jewish world where it originated in Jerusalem at Pentecost, and he would take that to non-Jewish people, the Gentiles, people whom the Jews would look at and say they're like dogs. Notice verse 9. To make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery which from the beginning of the world has been hid in God who created all things by Jesus Christ to the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God according to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence by the faith of him. Wherefore, I desire that you faint not at my tribulations, which is, tribulations for you, which is your glory. For this cause, I bow on my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. Now, this is Paul's prayer. And it is a prayer for spiritual strength. He says, for this cause... What calls, go back to verse 13, that you not faint, that you not give up, verse 12, that you have boldness and access with confidence. He says, so I'm praying for spiritual strength for this cause I bow, of whom the whole family 
in heaven and in earth is named. He's praying for spiritual strength. That's what we want to continue to do here as part of our church family. We pray for each other. We pray for ourselves. We pray for God's work to move forward. And we pray that God would empower us with spiritual strength. Notice, <clears throat> he goes on to say, not only is it a prayer for, prayer for spiritual strength, but it is a prayer for the indwelling presence of Jesus. Look in verse number 17. That Christ may dwell in your heart by faith, and that you, being, able, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints the breadth, the length, the depth, and the height. Now stop right there for just a moment. He says to this church that he had pastored, the church that he was instrumental in planting. Now remember, by the way, you remember where Paul was when he wrote the book of Ephesians? Paul was in prison. It's one of the prison epistles. And as he writes this, it is not as though he doesn't have any struggles or any problems. It's not as though he doesn't have any hardships or any, any difficulties that he's facing. For heaven's sakes, he's in prison. And as he writes this, he says, my prayer for you is that you'd have spiritual strength to move forward in boldness and confidence in the Lord. And my prayer for you is that you would have the indwelling presence of Jesus Christ in your life, regardless of what happens to you. <clears throat> that you would draw from that indwelling presence. You see that word in verse 17, the word dwell? It comes from a, from a, a, a compound Greek word that literally means down and home. Down and home or down and house. Meaning that as we're being built to the family of God, the household of faith, that our foundation will be down in this home that we're building. The foundation is Jesus Christ who lives there. Remember Jesus said, he said, the wise man builds his house up on the rock, the foolish man on the sand. When the storms come, the foolish man, his house collapses, but the wise man, his stands because down in his home, he has the indwelling presence of Jesus Christ in his life. So that's the prayer, not only for spiritual strength, but for the presence of Jesus in his life. And then he also says, this is a prayer to gives us the knowledge of the love of God because look at what he says, verse 18. That you might be able to comprehend with all the saints the breadth, the length, the depth, and the height, and to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. Notice that you could be able to comprehend, that you'd be able to comprehend. It's the idea of grasping and holding on. He says here that you'd hold on to what? to how wide the love of God is, to how broad the love of God is, to how high the love of God is, that we'd be able to grasp and hold on and comprehend the depth, the breadth, the width, the height of the love of God. As, um, as fallen human beings, um, we don't have the capacity to comprehend a, an agape unconditional kind of a perfect love 
Perhaps the closest that we can come would be that of a parent to their child because probably uh, all of us here who are parents uh, never knew that you could love another individual the way that you love your child. Now, certainly you love your spouse, but, but you love your children. It's in, a, it's in a different way, isn't it? Because it's like they're, they're part of you. And it's a total unconditional love. You may not agree with them all the time. Listen, you may not even like them a lot of the time. But you still, you still love them. Isn't that right? You still love them. And, and, and for us as parents, we can't really even explain how intense that love is. How could we ever begin to grasp or comprehend how wide and how high and how deep, how broad the love of God is for the world? Listen, a world who has no use for God. Who, when Jesus came into the world, they didn't even make room for him in Bethlehem's manger. They would follow him to the cross and ultimately crucify him and rag on him every step of the way and say, if you're really who you say you are, come down from the cross. And he could have came down and mopped this whole mess up. But with his love, he stayed there. Listen, that's a love we can never comprehend, isn't it? That it goes all around the world how broad it is. From heaven to earth and earth to heaven, that's how high it is, the depth of it. But that's Paul's prayer, that you would have spiritual strength, that you would have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit in your life, and that you would experience the knowledge of God's love, that you would know the breadth of God's love. What is the breadth? God so loved the world, right? He so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. What is the length of God's love? 1 Corinthians 13 says, love never fails. We sang that song this morning, your love never fails, it never runs out, it never gives up on me. You remember that? It goes on and on and on and on. Never fails, Never runs out. That's the length of God's love. It goes on and on and on. God says in his word, he says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. What is the depth of God's love? The Bible says the depth of God's love that Jesus humbled himself and became obedient to death, even the death upon the cross. The depth of God's love is illustrated in the fact that he would take his own darling son Hand him over to a world that he knew would crucify him. I'm telling you, I have three boys. I couldn't do that. I couldn't give any of my children. I couldn't give them up for anything, I don't think. But God, in the depth of his love for you and I, gave his son to die on the cross. What is the height? Listen to 1 John 3. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. The height of God's love all the way to heaven is how much God loves this world. So the breadth of God's love is the world. The length is forever. The depth is the cross. And the height is he takes us from our sin and from our shame and takes us to heaven. Listen to what F.B. Meyer said. There will always be as much horizon before us as behind us with regard to the love of God. And when we have been gazing on the face of Jesus for millenniums, its beauty will be as fresh and fascinating and fathomless as when we first saw from the gate of paradise. Now that was Paul's prayer that you could 
comprehend that and grasp the love of God. And then finally, you'll note that this was a prayer to glorify God in the church as we close. Look in verse 19. Not only that you would grasp the breadth and the length and the depth and the height of his love, verse 19, to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God, now to him, and I love this passage, that is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask, look at this, or think. Isn't that great? That he's able to do far above all that we ever ask. In fact, the Bible says we have not because we ask not or we ask amiss. But of all that we could ever ask, God surpasses that. And then he takes it a step further of all that we could ever even begin to think he is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. Unto him be glory in the church by Jesus Christ throughout all ages, the world without end. Charles Spurgeon said, he says, the apostle felt that he must not say, unto him be glory in my soul. He wished that, but his one soul afforded far too little space, and so he cried, unto him be glory in the church. He calls upon all the people of God to praise the divine name. That's Charles Haddon Spurgeon. So to him be glory, the one who loves us from eternity past to eternity present, to eternity in the future with his Depth, breadth, height, and width of his unfailing love. So all of that, Paul would say, I want you to be together in this thing as you build the kingdom. I want you to be one. I want you to be united. I want you to link arms, and I want you to work together. The Bible says in the Old Testament, can two walk together except they be agreed? So what we have that unites us is far more than what divides us. Isn't that right? We are built together, made alive together, quickened together, brought together to build this wonderful household of faith, the kingdom of God.